If you're in Mark chapter 2 in your Bible, say amen. amen. If you didn't bring a copy of God's Word, it's okay. We'll have it right up there on the screen for you to follow through. Let's read the first 12 verses. And again, he entered into Capernaum after some days, and it was noise that he was in the house. And straightway many were gathered together, insomuch that there was no room to receive them. No, not so much as about the door. And he preached the word unto them. And they came unto him, bringing one sick of the palsy, which was born of four. And when they could not come nigh unto him for the press, they uncovered the roof where he was. When they had broken it up, they let down the bed wherein the sick of the palsy lay. When Jesus saw their faith, he said unto the sick of the palsy, Son, thy sins be forgiven thee. But there were certain of the scribes sitting there and reasoning in their hearts, Why doth this man thus speak blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God only? And immediately when Jesus perceived in his spirit that they so reasoned within themselves, he said unto them, why reason ye these things in your hearts? Whether is it easier to say to the sick of the palsy, thy sins be forgiven thee? Or to say, arise and take up thy bed and walk. But that ye may know that the Son of Man hath power on earth to forgive sins, he saith to the sick of the palsy, I say unto thee, arise. And take up thy bed and go thy way into thine house. And immediately he arose, took up the bed and went forth before them all. insomuch that they were all amazed and glorified God saying, we never saw it on this fashion. Title of my message today is in the form of a question. Who can forgive sins? Who can forgive sins? sins. We read that Jesus was in a place called Capernaum. This is a place where he was very popular. He was liked by all. In fact, he was like a rock star in this community. When they got news that he was in town, um, they all began to flock to where he was because they got specific news of the specific location, the exact house where Jesus was. And when they all converged on his house, he did as he often did. He didn't turn them away. He invited them into the living room and into the porch way and even crowding out into the yard and the driveway. And Jesus began to preach to them. It was like the first open house service in the Bible. But soon after Jesus started preaching, the story said he was interrupted in a very unusual way. Dirt and rocks and Sticks started falling from the roof of that house and into the living room where Jesus was preaching. As, as they all looked up, there was a group of four men, four of them who were literally unroofing the roof. Now that sounds almost like an impossible task as we look at our roof. We've got a drop ceiling, but on top of that, we've got a roof that, that, that is covered with tar and, and all kinds of good stuff that, you know, really would take a lot of work to get through. But in the Middle Eastern home, it wasn't so. These, these, these roofs were flat. Oftentimes they were used as patios and people would climb on them, walk on them. They were made of dirt and, and sticks and, and clay. So it would have been pretty easy for them to begin to dig a hole in this roof to where they could get down into the living room. But it also would have been very distracting to Jesus as he was preaching. But they continued to dig almost shamelessly. And as the hole in the roof got bigger, Jesus and the others in the house noticed that they were carrying a stretcher 
with a man lying on it and they were preparing to lower him down into the living room. Could you imagine if that happened right in the middle of our service today? I'd get the security team on that real fast. Why were they doing this? Well, the story says their buddy was paralyzed because he had a condition called palsy. This was a fatal disease in that day that was absolutely disabling. There was no human cure. This man had probably never walked before in his life. Humanly speaking, there was no hope. But thankfully, he had some friends that cared enough about him to get him to Jesus in hopes that that he could heal him of his disease and and make him walk again. And you know, I've found that, that many of us come to Jesus a lot like this man did, and for the same reason, we just want some help. Now, now we might not come on a stretcher, but we do come with our own problems that we believe Jesus can fix. Maybe maybe our marriage is struggling, and we think that if we go to church, God will fix it. Maybe our our finances are completely wrecked, and, and we think if we start putting Jesus first again in our lives, He'll fix them. Or maybe it's a physical need like this man had, and quite honestly, we just want to go to God for healing because we know He can. Many people go to church because, well, they've come to the end of themselves. They've been snared by an addiction. They've lost their closest relationships. They're emotionally a wreck, and they just want a new start in life. Listen, if you have any of those external issues and you find yourself at church today, you're in the right place. Jesus can fix your marriage. Jesus can give you wisdom to fix your financial situation. Jesus still has the power to heal your body. And and he still has the wherewithal to break the chains of any addiction that you find yourself in this morning. But all of these situations, as important as they are, might just be symptoms of a greater problem that you face today. Does Jesus want to fix your marriage? Absolutely. Your grief, for sure. Your health, no doubt. But you and I, we both have a more important problem that Jesus wants to address first before he fixes any of those things. Now, how do I know that? Well, because when Jesus looks up and he sees these these men lowering their buddy down through the ceiling, his first instinct wasn't to heal him of the palsy. Look at verse number five. When Jesus saw their faith, he said unto the sick of the palsy, Son, thy sins be forgiven thee. Man, you would think that Jesus would rebuke these men for interrupting his sermon. But he responded in a positive way. He was impressed that they had the kind of faith that would do whatever it would take to get to Jesus. And Jesus responded to their faith with a healing. But he didn't heal the man of palsy. He didn't address the physical, external need that the man had. He saw a greater need. He saw that the real problem with this man was not palsy. Watch here. It was sin. And and that's the first thing Jesus addressed. It was the first thing he healed, his soul. Listen to me, friend. Jesus always addresses the greater need of our souls before he addresses the need of our bodies or the need of our finances or the need of our marriage or our addictions or any other external need. I mean, the reason Jesus came to earth in the first place was to seek and save that which was lost, to deal with the real problem of mankind. And here's what we all have in common today. We're all sinners. I thought I'd get a little more agreement on that. We're all sinners. Now, our external problems differ in here. Some might come in here with a great marriage. Some might come in here with a rocky marriage. Some might come in here not married at all. 
Some might have well-behaved kids and healthy kids, while some bring with them sick kids or rebellious kids. Some might have stable finances, while some have broken finances. Some might have, have worked all last week at a great job with wonderful benefits and a reasonable boss, but some might have worked last week at a terrible job with an unreasonable boss and little to no benefits. Our external needs, they differ, and they do matter to God greatly. But what matters even more to God is our spiritual needs. See, the one thing that we all struggle with today more than anything else is this disease called sin. Listen, if we could do a rapid test of the sin virus today, everybody would test positive. What exactly is sin, though? Well, the very definition of the word is this. Missing the mark. That's what the word sin means, missing the mark. That's why the Apostle Paul wrote in Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and come short or miss the mark of the glory of God. I want you to imagine a dartboard, if you would. The bullseye is God's glory. What's God's glory? It's His holiness. It's His perfection. It's what makes Him God. It's what we're not. And every day in our humanity, every day in our lives, we are trying to hit that bullseye. We're trying to be perfect. We're, we're trying just to be good sometimes. We're, we're, we're trying to be benevolent and kind and gracious and loving. We're trying to abide by the golden rule to treat others as we'd want to be treated. I mean, we're just trying to even do some religious deeds here and there because we want to we wanna be like God. We want to earn God's favor. We want to be a good person. Here's the thing, though. On your best day, you never hit the bullseye. You've never lived one sin-free day in your life. Not one. You know how I know that? Because the moment you were born, you had sin in you. You didn't even know any better. But because of the first man and the first woman in Genesis chapter 2 and 3 that sinned, all that sin nature was passed down. That's why you don't have to teach your kids how to, how to be hateful. You don't have to teach them uh, how to lie, anything like that. It comes natural. Even on your best day, you miss God's glory because we are all sinners. Now listen here. Here's why recognizing that you're a sinner and the severity of it is so important because sin separates us from God. No, the Bible says for the wages of sin is, say that next word out loud. Death. What is death? It's separation. When you die, you are separated from your body. You are separated from life. And when we are, when you take that last breath, listen to me, friend, your soul goes to one of two places, heaven or hell. The verse tells us that the where you deserve to go, where I deserve to go, our wages, the paycheck we deserve because of our sin is death. That's talking about spiritual death, which, which means separation from God in hell. The idea of hell, a real place of eternal separation from God as a consequence for rejecting God, that seems harsh, seems very harsh. But understand why it's necessary. It's necessary because God is holy. What does holy mean? Set apart. Set apart from what? From sin. God has never sinned. God will never sin. And God cannot dwell in the presence of sin. And so you have to understand that because you're a sinner... You deserve to be separated from a holy God. That's why your sin has to be made right before you can be in God's presence. And follow this. This is why Jesus 
didn't start by healing the man's health issue. But he started with the spiritual issue because he didn't want to be separated from this man for all of eternity. And it makes sense. What good would it do for Jesus to heal this man of his palsy, but never healed his soul of sin? He would have given the man a good life on earth, but the man would have died of his sin and been separated from God for all of eternity. And the same is true for you. You might bring your external issue to Jesus even today and want him to fix it. So you cry out in all sincerity. You cry out, God, fix my marriage or God, fix my finances or God, God, give me a new job. God, God, fix my kids, heal my body, free me from this terrible addiction. But let me ask you this. What good will that do if God heals your external physical needs if you never allow him to fix your real problem on the inside? Your sin problem. You're not just wanting Jesus to come and put a band-aid on your, on your problems right now to give you a better life on earth. You want a better life in eternity because the other side of this life is a lot longer than this side. Man, that would be like getting diagnosed with cancer, but instead of letting the doctor give you chemotherapy or, or even having surgery to remove the tumor, you just ask him to give you extra strength Tylenol to help with the fever. That would be silly. You, you would feel temporarily better, but cancer would kill you because you never truly dealt with the real problem. Jesus is the great physician. Jesus is the perfect doctor. He'll never diagnose you wrong. He'll never prescribe you wrong medicine because he loves you. He will not put a band-aid on your life. He wants to heal and cure your soul. So then what's the cure? If sin is the devastating disease, what fixes it? The same thing that fixed the paralytic man. You know what it was? Forgiveness. That's what Jesus gave him. Verse 5 says, when Jesus saw their faith, he said unto the sick of the palsy, Son, thy sins be forgiven thee. Jesus healed him through his forgiveness. And he can do the same for you. Are you listening to me? He can forgive your sins. Now, what does that mean exactly? Well, the word forgiveness means to let go, to pardon, to, to release, to cancel, to remove the guilt resulting from wrongdoing. And forgiveness really is an amazing word. And it's an amazing feeling to be forgiven. Just ask the child that does wrong and then they hear their parents say, I forgive you. Ask the husband that hurts his wife, but then hears his wife say, I forgive you. Ask two friends who got in an argument and their, their relationship went sideways, but later on in life they were able to look at each other and say, I forgive you. To be forgiven is a wonderful thing. And the same is true when you've wronged God through your sin. You may feel guilt and even shame, but when you come to Jesus humbly and honestly and ask for his forgiveness, he, like a good parent, like a spouse, like a loving friend, will say, I forgive you. That means he'll release you from the guilt of your sin. He'll pardon you. He'll remove your sin so that you can be made right with God and not have to be separated from God in a real place called hell. Now, he'll cure your soul with his forgiveness. But I want you to notice what moved Jesus to forgive this man of his sin before he ever even healed this man of his disease. You know what it was? His faith. That's what it says when Jesus saw their faith. What is faith? What is faith? It's an inward belief that leads to an outward commitment. 
Did you get that? Faith is an inward belief that leads to an outward commitment. Faith is is believing in my heart this chair will hold me up, but it leads me to commit to it and sit in it. That's faith. Faith is, is believing that my doctor prescribes me the best medicine that I need for my illness, but faith continues as it takes me to the pharmacy, and I trust the pharmacist enough to take the medicine, put it in my body. Faith is what happened this last week when I flew out to northwest Arkansas to officiate a wedding. And I had never met the pilot of the airplane. Not once, didn't even see his face. But I believed he was capable to safely take me from point A to point B. And I believed it enough to commit to it. I sat my rear end in the chair and buckled up and said a quick prayer. Yeah. And, And these five men, they believed inwardly, watch here, that Jesus was the only one that could fix this man's problem. But that belief led to an outward commitment of doing whatever it took to get to Jesus. They couldn't get through the crowd, so they went up the external staircase. And they had such faith that they were willing to destroy this dude's roof and interrupt Jesus' sermon to get this guy help. Watch here. If you want your sins to be forgiven, here's what you have to believe deep down in your soul. You have to believe Jesus died on the cross for your sins, that Jesus was buried but rose again to win the victory over your sin. You have to believe that in here. And you have to believe that enough to commit to it, meaning that you will cry out to God for forgiveness and make him the Lord of your life. Now that sounds simple, doesn't it? But to some in here today, it isn't. Because some in here today, you're not that sure about Jesus as I sound. Because you might be thinking, I I wasn't taught that it's just Jesus. It's been taught that it's some other things as well. Now, I believe in Jesus, but I've been taught that it's a lot more than just crying out to Jesus. And and, and I've been taught that I need to be a good person in order to earn Jesus' forgiveness. Some are thinking, how can I trust that Jesus is really the Son of God and he's really the only way? I mean, there are so many religions out there. What makes him the right one and the only one? See, at the end of the day, your skepticism, all your questions boil down to this thing. Does Jesus have the power and authority to forgive my sins. That's what it boils down to. Does he have the power and authority to forgive my sins? Watch here. If that's you and you're a little skeptical of the Jesus idea and Jesus and Jesus alone idea, you're welcome in this crowd. Because Jesus welcomes, welcomes skeptics in his crowd. No, because there were some skeptics and they had this question. Who can forgive sins? And thankfully, Jesus cared enough about to answer the question. Look at verse six, verse six. But there were certain of the scribes sitting there and reasoning in their hearts. Why does this man thus speak blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God only? Come up here for a moment. They were so skeptical of Jesus that they called what he did blasphemy. You know what that was in their day to them? That that, that was somebody that that claimed to be God. Somebody that did the works of God but wasn't God. And blasphemy, it was an offense, an actual national crime punishable by death in some cases. In fact, that's why they put Jesus on the cross. And notice, notice in that verse that in their very question at the bottom of the screen, they answered their own question. Who can forgive sins? They answered it. God only. 
He's the only, they got it right. They were skeptical, but they guessed right. Only God can forgive sins. Here's where they went wrong. They didn't believe this guy, Jesus, was God. So they didn't believe he had the authority to forgive sins, so he, he, he's, he's guilty of blasphemy. Thankfully, though, Jesus didn't get defensive. He didn't write them off just because they falsely accused him. He actually went the distance to prove his deity and to help their skepticism and to bring some truth into their life. Look at how the story ends in verse 8. I love this. And immediately when Jesus perceived in his spirit that they so reasoned within themselves. By the way, you never have to say that you're, you're skeptical out loud. Jesus already knows. If you're doubting today, you, don't, you can act like you're not. But in your heart, if you are, Jesus knows. It's okay. If you're not 100% sure of your salvation, you don't know where you'd spend eternity. You don't know if you go to heaven or hell. Jesus already knows that about you. And so the things that you're reasoning in your heart as I'm speaking right now, Jesus can hear every one of those inward thoughts. He said, why reason ye these things in your hearts? Verse 9. Whether is it easier to say to the sick of the palsy, thy sins be forgiven thee, or to say, arise and take up thy bed and walk? And watch what he did. But that ye may know. He said, I want to prove to you that the Son of Man hath power on earth to forgive sins. He say to the sick of the palsy, I say unto thee, this is, this is the paralytic man, arise and take up thy bed and go thy way into thine house. And immediately he arose, took up the bed and went forth before them all. Jesus said, let me prove to you that I am the son of God. I am God in the flesh. And he said, get up and walk, man. Don't miss the miracle of this. A guy that had never walked before and was carried into Jesus' house on a stretcher, lowered through a broken up roof, was completely and instantly healed. So much so, he took the stretcher underneath his arm and said, adios. This is like a miracle within a miracle. You know why? He wouldn't have possessed the neurological ability to walk. Most people who are paralyzed have to learn or relearn how to walk through grueling hours of physical therapy. You don't see any physical therapy this guy had to go through. He wouldn't, he wouldn't have possessed the muscular maturation to walk. He had virtually no leg muscles, no muscle memory. Brother Nick, I see you your physical therapist. You know, you're shaking your head. You know what I'm talking about. He had never walked before in his life. Yet Jesus instantly healed his mind, instantly healed his muscles. And completely healed his entire body of palsy. Here's why Jesus did that. To show the skeptics that if he can heal a physical disease instantly and completely, then he has the power and the authority to heal a spiritual disease instantly and completely. He wanted to prove that if he can heal a man's body of sin, then he can heal a man's soul of sin. Heal a man's body of palsy, rather. Then he can heal a man's soul of sin. And think about it. It's like case closed, is it not? Who can argue with that? Jesus says, get up and walk. And the guy gets up and he walks. So then, why should you trust in Jesus? As the only one who can heal you of your sin disease and forgive you. Why? Here's why. Because Jesus is the son of God. And he has proven that in authoritative and definitive ways. Of course, we just saw how he has authority over illness and disease. But do you know that the Bible also shows on many accounts how he has authority over weather? 
just to prove that he is God. Literally, Jesus was walking on a sea of Galilee. Tempest was raging. Storm was going crazy. He said three words, peace be still, and Mother Nature obeyed his voice. Jesus had, had, had power, the Bible says, over spirits and demons, so much so that with the spoken word, he would call them out of demon-possessed people, sometimes hundreds at a time. But there is no greater proof, watch here, of Jesus' authority and power as the Son of God than the day he rose from the dead. Now look, look, look at this account. I want to read it to you. Now upon the first day of the week, very early in the morning, they came into the sepulcher bringing the spices which they had prepared and certain others with them. And they found the stone rolled away from the sepulcher. And they entered in and found not the body of the Lord Jesus. And it came to pass as they were much perplexed thereabout. Behold, two men, these are angels, stood by them in shining garments. And as they were afraid and bowed down their faces to the earth, they said to them, Why seek ye the living among the dead? He is not here, but is risen. Hey, why should you trust Jesus? Here's why. Because if he has the power to heal disease, and if he has the power over nature, and he has the power over demonic spirits, and if Jesus has the power to defeat death, he has the power to forgive your sins and change your life forever. You know what that implies? You don't have that kind of power. You can't make a lame man walk, or a blind man see, or a deaf man to hear. What makes you think that you can do enough good deeds to save yourself? What makes you think that you can turn over enough new leaves to save yourself? What makes you think that you can be kind enough and good enough and generous enough to take yourself to heaven? And no other man, by the way, has that kind of power either. Not a pastor, not a priest, not a bishop, not a praying family member after you die. No religion has that kind of power that Jesus has to forgive sin. No Baptist church has that power. No Catholic church has that power. No Pentecostal church has that power. No Lutheran church has that power. No Methodist church has that power. No religion has that power, which means that nothing you do inside of those religions has the power to forgive you of your sins. No communion can forgive you. No baptism can, commun- can forgive you. No sacrament can forgive you. No classes can forgive you. No public professions can forgive you. Nothing other than Jesus has the power to wash away your sins, for it's Jesus that said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. And no man cometh unto the Father but by me. Jesus and Jesus alone is the only one that holds the power to forgive your sins. So then if our biggest problem is a sin problem, and if the only cure is forgiveness and Jesus is the only one that can give it, how do we get it? How do we receive his forgiveness Two very simple ways. Number one, you have to recognize your need to be forgiven. Would you please tune in for about five more minutes? Do you understand today that your greatest problem is not what you see on the outside? It's not your relationship, your finances, your job, or your upbringing. Your greatest problem is the sin you've got on the inside. And in order to be forgiven of your sin, you have to first be aware of your sin and the severity of it. Listen, if you had cancer, the only way you could be healed of it is if you became aware of your cancer and you admitted that you have it. And not only admit that you have it, but understand the seriousness of it to get help. Sin is more serious in terms of eternity than cancer could ever be. Sin's not just terminal, it is eternal. 
It separates you from God and eliminates you from the possibility of heaven after you die. Do you understand the severity of your sin disease? Do you understand the severity enough of it to say, I just need help. What do I got to do to get this thing fixed? Thankfully, you don't have to go through a roof in a church today to get it fixed. It's much easier than that. But you should have the kind of faith that would be willing to if you had to. And that's the second thing that you have to do to receive forgiveness. You have to first recognize your need, but then you have to place your faith in Jesus alone. Nobody else. Doesn't matter how you were brought up. Baptist, Lutheran, Presbyterian, Catholic, Methodist, non-denominational, never stepped foot into a church before in your life, watching on live stream, and you've never even been to our church before. None of that matters. No past, present, future credentials matter. Jesus and Jesus alone is who you place your faith in. Remember, faith is an inward belief that leads to an outward commitment. What are you supposed to believe on the inside? Jesus died for your sin. He was buried and he rose again. Do you believe that? Can you put your faith in that even though you weren't there on that day? Even though you've never seen Jesus, can you have enough faith to believe that he loved you enough to die on the cross for your sins so you wouldn't have to go to hell? If you believe that, you'll be willing to commit your life to Jesus and Jesus alone. You won't rely on baptism. You won't rely on communion. You won't rely on good behavior or something your parents said you did when you were younger. And you won't just run to Jesus to fix your outward problems and your outward struggles. You won't just add them to your life today as an accessory. You will be willing to commit your life to Jesus and make him the Lord of your life. Real, real faith leads to real commitment to Jesus and Jesus alone. I want to do that. I want to do that. All right, then I'll close with a few scripture verses to tell you how. It's what you can do like right now today. That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart, that's faith, that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be. What's the next word? Look at the next verse. For with the heart inside, man believeth unto righteousness. Here's where the faith leads to a commitment. And with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. What do I do, pastor? Here's what you do. You cry out to God. That's what you do. And this is where most people get hung up because they don't like praying out loud. And they feel uncomfortable with that. And that really makes them nervous. Because they think that they have to say like these magical words or know this formula or this theory or rehearse this, some kind of liturgy to to, to be able to get God's attention. You just have to cry out to God from your heart. You you know what I think of when I I explain that? It's when people call 911. They they need help. They're scared. They're either sick or, 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 or they're in danger. Do you understand that before those people call 911, they don't rehearse what they're going to tell the dispatcher for 20 minutes before they call? They don't care how polished they're going to be, how perfect they're going to be. They don't. You know what? They're desperate. They have faith to believe that the dispatcher is the only one that connects them to the law enforcement or the ambulance that can help them. And so in faith, they just say, I need help. Where do you live? I don't know. I just need help. You never see a dispatcher rebuke them or chastise them for being out of control or for being scared or for being unfiltered. 
saying it not in the right way. The dispatcher understands what God knows about our cries. This person's desperate and I'm going to do what I can do to get them help. And when you cry out to God based on the fact that you've been revealed to you, you've got a sin disease. It's not about the words you say. It's about the faith you have in your heart. And with desperation, you simply say, God, I want you to save me. I can't save myself. I believe the best I can that you died on the cross, that you was buried, that you rose again. And that you, you want to forgive me of my sin. God, would you forgive me? It can be a five second prayer or five minute prayer. But it is crying out to God, committing to him as he commits to you. That's faith. So I want to give you an opportunity to do that today. I will not take for granted that everybody in this room and everybody watching online is saved today. You know what saved means? Forgiven. Made right with God. Those of us that are saved in here, see, we know something. We have a blessed peace in our hearts every night when we go to sleep. That if we don't wake up on this earth and we die, we will wake up in the very presence of God. Amen. See, all of us share that in common who are saved. We have that blessed peace. To where when we hear messages like this, we're just shaking our head saying, amen. We're not convicted. Our heart's not pounding deeply. We're thinking in our hearts, God, would you save those who aren't saved? Would you give them what I have? But I think there are some in this room where your blood pressure's up just a little bit right now. And your mind is racing. And your heart's beating. And you're hearing a voice that's not mine. You've never been taught to this clearly by God. Online or in this, in this room. And you're thinking in your heart, what does this mean? The Bible word for it is conviction. It's a judicial term. You know, when the judge lays down the gavel, says, you've been convicted of this, you are guilty. And God, through his gentle while at the same time, very firm, personalized voice is whispering to you this. You're guilty. And he is wanting to make it right for you. So here's what we're going to do. Just a moment. I'm going to ask you to be very, very honest. It'll be a private setting in the sense that I'm going to ask everybody to bow their head and close their eyes. And nobody will be looking. It'll be a very respectful moment. And I'm going to just ask if there's anybody in here. And if you're online and you're watching and God's doing this in your heart, you participate. I'm going to ask if there's anyone in here who's never been forgiven of their sin. I'm not asking if, if, if you're religious or not. None of that matters. I'm not asking if you've been baptized or if you've been a good, good person, if you're a member of a church. None of that matters. Okay? Being saved is about putting your faith in Jesus and Jesus alone. So I'm going to ask you to be real honest and put your hand up and put it right back down. Well, why are you doing that, Pastor? Because the very first step to being cured is admitting you need it. You must admit it. And then after you raise your hand, I'm going to help you. I'm going to lead you in a, a, a very simple but meaningful life-changing prayer. I don't know exactly what I'm going to pray. <laughs> it's going to come from my heart. And if you choose to repeat after me, it needs to come from your heart too. 
Getting saved is not about the words we say, remember? It's about crying out to God, but I'm going to help you pray that right there in your seat today. You don't have to pray it out loud. You can pray it silently in your heart. And then after we do that, I'm going to have everybody stand to their feet. Our musicians are going to play and many of our church members and already saved believers are going to be coming to the altars. Because that's what we do at the end of hearing God's word preached. We come and we worship him and thank him and respond to how he spoke into our heart. And here's what I want you to do. If you pray that prayer, I'm going to stand right here in front of this remembrance table. And I want you to fall right in line with him. And instead of going to the altar, I want you to come to me. I want to personally pray with you today. So would you bow your head and close your eyes right where you're at?